You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. I'm Robert. I'm the uh, ch- children's crossing kids guy and uh, crossing students, and I'm on the staff here at the Crossing Church. So, really good to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, you want to go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter nine. We're in a we're in a series called Resilient. And the idea of resilience. We're talking about like how how can we be resilient disciples of Jesus. Like not just religious people, but truly like standing the test of time, facing the the waves that are going to come our way. How can we be resilient in our discipleship to Jesus? And we learned in week one of this from Jared that to do this, we've got to practice the way of Jesus. So as disciples of Jesus, we're practicing the way of Jesus. In other words, we cannot expect the life of Jesus without also adopting the lifestyle of Jesus. Second week, we learned that we must be rooted in the scriptures. Week three, we learned that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because honestly, I mean, think about this. Like, why did you come this morning? We just sang about this. We came to, we came to meet with and hear from God. Like, you, did, you didn't come. I, I know, most of you probably didn't know I was speaking today. You know, I know you did not come here to hear somebody like give you some good ideas and hopefully change your mind about something so you can walk out and be a better person. But we come here today to to literally meet with God and walk out in the power of his spirit. Fourthly, we learned last week that we are driven as as disciples of Jesus we're driven by compassionate mission. And Jesus is all about mission is his heart is filled with compassion thank you jesus and today number five we're going to learn that as to be resilient disciples of jesus we must be committed to extravagant generosity in fact there is no way we will not see any kind of revival or renewal in our own lives or in our church or in our city without the people of God adopting a heart of radical generosity. It simply will not happen. And the reason why is because this is the heart of God. Our God is a generous God. And I want to give you, before we even get started, I want to give you a couple of warnings about what might might want to creep up here. The first one is that, I mean, like anytime a minister or somebody on staff, you know, gets up and starts talking about money, like Satan was going to want to get in there and and plant a seed of distrust. Like, yes, it's true that my salary depends on faithful giving. And so, I mean, definitely uh, there could be this temptation to get in there like, well, there's some kind of false motive here or some hidden agenda. And I do want you to know there is a hidden agenda. But it's not that you would tithe more or anything like that. But it's that your heart would belong to God. Like he would have your heart. So that'd be the first warning. The second thing I would, I would just 
have you pay attention to is that as this sermon goes on, it would be very tempting to start feeling some shame for many of us around some of these things. And I just want you to know right out of the gate that like shame does not come from God. Uh, shame is a little different than guilt, like guilt saying I did something bad or I've done something wrong, where shame says I am bad. And just know that that's a word from the enemy uh, because in Christ we are new creations. The old has gone and behold, all things are made new. So if you have your Bible and you've turned to Matthew chapter 9, we're going to read together beginning in verse 35. Matthew 9 verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When they saw the crowds, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. They're like sheep without a shepherd. So he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So what do we do? Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And Jesus does not just stop there. Okay. He doesn't say like, all right, look, there is a work to be done. Pray God will do it. Go eat lunch. Like that's not, that's not the message. He goes on in chapter 10. Let's look what happens next. It says he calls his disciples to him and then he does what he gave. He gives them authority to drive out impure spirits, to heal every disease and sickness. Skip down to verse seven. Jesus talks now and he says, as you go, proclaim this message. Here it is. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons freely you have received. Freely give. Eugene Peterson in his uh, message paraphrase of the Bible, he translates that last phrase, that freely you have received, freely give. He translates it this way. He says, you have been treated generously. So live generously. You have been treated generously. So live generously. Oh, isn't that true? Haven't we been treated so, so generously? In last week, we learned about the compassion of Jesus, how it moves us on mission. Like because of the compassion of Jesus, we are about mission, like expanding the kingdom of God to the hurt and the lost, the broken. And today we're going to see that the compassion of Jesus leads then to generosity. It leads to generosity. There are seven real quick things I want to say about the text we just read. So we'll get into them quick. Okay. Number one, generosity is the chief strategy for kingdom expansion on earth as it is in heaven. Now we've been saying at the crossing church that like what we're about, our vision is to see God's kingdom come and his will be done on earth right here in Northeast Arkansas, just like it is in heaven. In other words, we want to see what, what is happening in heaven, what the angels experience there to break in here in this life. Okay. Not just like we want to live for one of these days, we're going to die and go to heaven. No, we want to see heaven break in to Paragold today. Okay. And the number one way that happens, the chief strategy for the expansion of the kingdom of God is extravagant generosity. And look what Jesus said there. He said, freely you have received, so freely give. So Jesus gives what he has 
to his followers. Why? So that they in turn can give what they've been given to the world. Freely received. Freely give. And John, by the way, in 1 John chapter 3, John talks about how like when we become disciples of Jesus, when we, when we say yes to Christ and no to our self, that we receive from God this deposit, this seed from God. He puts in us His Holy Spirit. Now check this out. You may hear that and be like, yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. Oh, whoa, wow. Every week, every, every time I, I, I'm, I hit something. In you, if you are following Christ, if you have been born of the Spirit, God has placed in you his Holy Spirit. Check this out. This is the same Holy Spirit who empowered Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry to do the things he did. To drive out demons, to heal the sick, to proclaim good news to the captives. Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. That same Spirit lives in you. This also is the same Spirit, check this out, that raised Jesus from the dead. The same power, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Check it out now. Jesus was dead, was laid down. He was dead for a couple of days. His body begins to, you know, maybe stink. And the spirit of God raises that body back to life. Have you ever seen that happen? That same spirit lives in you if you belong to Christ. And if that's true, then God's DNA, in a sense, flows through your veins. And just like with my own kids, my DNA flows through their veins. And unfortunately for my daughters, that means they look a little bit like me. My oldest daughter has this big forehead that I have. I mean, it's abnormally large. And uh, I mean, it looks great on her. But like, you know, on me. Or like when I, I guarantee you when Andy hears someone say, well, you look so much like your dad. That's not something she wants to hear. Like, don't tell her that. You know what I'm saying? It's true. But don't tell her that. And as, listen, as, as when we receive the Spirit of God, we become a brother or a sister to Christ and a co-heir with Jesus, children of God. And when that happens, his DNA is in us and therefore you can't help it. But like the character of God begins to ooze out of you. So there's not something this morning that like I should, well, I, not that I should, that I could convince you of here. Because what we're going to be talking about is beyond just like rational thinking. Okay, here's what I'm saying. Like you didn't come here so that like I could convince you of some rational thing. Okay, like I would do with math. Okay, if I came here and you didn't know anything about math. And uh, I said, well, like, if you have two apples and Adam brings two more apples up onto the stage, how many apples do we have? Steve? No, no. Two apples and two more apples. There's four. That's right. Okay. Now, some of you out here are like, that's how it works. I get it. You know, and like you could walk away convinced of, of two plus two is four. Okay. But what's happening here is what Paul talks about in Ephesians 3. Like this, we're going to be talking about the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. So there's something here that is beyond just like, I want to try to convince you to give more money. But there's something here that, that God wants us to, to understand that his DNA flows through us and therefore 
like you're going to be, yes, of course I'm going to be generous because my father's generous. And it just comes out. This is a chief strategy that for the expanding the kingdom of God. And you may be sitting back saying, yeah, but the gospel's free. Yeah, I mean, the gospel's free, but like somebody has to put in the plumbing, you know? So number one, chief strategy for kingdom expansion. Number two, generosity aligns our, our lives, our hearts with the heart of God and the values of his kingdom. So like what I'm wanting to communicate, like we just said, cannot just be ration, like not just rational thinking. But what happens is when we step into generosity, it's like, uh, you remember watching Nemo? I know you've all seen it. It's like you watch Nemo and, uh, when little squirt, the little turtle, he's like trying to, to get into the E, what is it? The, uh, What's the name of that current? You know, the East Australian current, the EAC. He's trying to get into the EAC, you know, like little squirt gets in there. And like when he gets in the current, it like, boom, you know what I'm saying? Just takes off. Okay. Well, like stepping into generosity is like stepping into the EAC. It's like you get into the flow of the heart of God because God's heart is, it's not, it's not static. It's moving. God is a giving God. John chapter three, verse 16 says that God loved the world in this way that he what? He gave, he gave his one and only son. He didn't just store up his son for later, you know? No, he, he gave. And so this is the heart of God. It moves in that direction. And do you get that like as a child of God, this same heart then begins to be formed in you as a child of God. Check this out. You have been seated in the heavenly realms with Christ you have been made, like we just said, you've been made a co, a co-heir with Jesus. And that the Father is now your Father. Christ Jesus' Father is now your Father. And all those resources of heaven are now at your disposal. Do you get this? Like all of that is now at your disposal. Revelation chapter 3. Like John or Jesus talking, like wraps up this, this letter to the church saying that like I, to those who overcome, I have given them authority to sit on my throne. That, that isn't, do you realize like when, when this all like comes to a head here, eventually the day is coming. Like when, when we are going to rule with Christ in a, in a resurrected earth, you know, like where Jesus is physically going to be here and you and I as his like co-heirs, you are going to rule and reign over all of this creation. So like, how is it then that money and possessions in this life so easily like entrap us and pull our eyes away from that reality? I don't know, but it does to me all the time. So when we step into generosity, which is what we're going to find out next, is countercultural. When we step into generosity, it aligns our hearts with the nature of God. Not only that, but it reveals the heart and nature of God to the world. Like this is how the world sees what God is like. It's like getting into some kind of investment before it takes off. Anybody uh, here invest in Amazon before like anyone knew what it was? Did anybody do that? No, of course you didn't because we, I don't know. Well, maybe you did and didn't tithe off of it. You know, we would know that. But so anyway, like the point is, is like that you would, your life would have been radically changed getting on the ground floor of something like Amazon or Netflix or whatever. So something like that. 
generosity is like literally getting in on an investment in, in, in kingdom work, like kingdom expansion. And so, uh, like Allison and I, when we uh, started Ohana, it was, it was honestly like part of our motivation for, for doing this. Uh, one, one motivation clearly is we wanted to give our kids a job because uh, my oldest was coming of age. She wanted a job. And we were like, well, we don't just want to work in anywhere. We want to be really intentional like in where she works and how she's trained. And we want to give her some, uh, some like real life skills and train her properly. You know, that's kind of our thought. And not only that though, but we could hire maybe like some of her or my son's friends. And maybe we could have some influence over their life. Like maybe we could use this as some kind of like missional tool to expand the kingdom of God here in Paragol. And that's exactly what we began to do. We've, we've seen people come to faith like through that work, you know. Not only that, but, you know, we've done some uh, like some charity work and things like that for different organizations around town and, and whatnot. And, for, for example, uh, this last week, I got a phone call from a friend of ours. Her name's Morgan. And she was like, hey, we're doing this little 5K run. Would Ohana like to show up and, like, do an event, you know, and just give us an invoice. We'll pay for it. And we're trying to raise money for some organization. And like usual, I wasn't really listening real good. I don't know what the organization was. I'm like, yeah, sure, we'll do it, you know. So Saturday evening, I got one of our guys, Carter Willis, and like, yeah, let's go down there together. And we're going to serve some snow cones for, you know, people who are running the 5K. Okay? It's at CRA, a school here in town. So we go. Uh, to CRA, 5 p.m. yesterday, and uh, they're running this 5K. We're making snow cones, and there's like three booths set up, okay? And because I didn't really even know what we're, what we're there for, you know, I, I go over and I just go check it out. And one of the first things I see is like this little um, uh, display of like the different stages of development of, uh, of a child, you know, like in the womb. And so I immediately like, okay, this is like a, a pro-life or something like that type organization, and so I started asking them about their organization, and they, they said that their primary role, what they're primarily trying to do is help children who are in the uh, sex, like getting stuck in sex trafficking that's actually happening here in Northeast Arkansas. They help them get out, uh, and uh, then they help get them treatment and, and help moving forward, and they help partner with law enforcement and other agencies and things like that. And they're actually trying to raise money to open up a location in Paragool. They've got one in Jonesboro right now. Anyway, and uh, she then tells me a story. So, like, for example, like last week, we just helped a six-year-old girl get out of a situation in her home where her parents were using her to barter for drugs. And so she's a six-year-old girl. The parents would take uh, drugs, and in exchange, uh, they would give out their daughter uh, for sexual purposes, and she's six years old. And so they help rescue her out of that. And then they're like, uh, you know, we're trying to help her, you know, get help and get with the proper agencies and things like that. And so when I heard this at the end of it, Morgan comes to me and she says like, Robert, just give me an invoice. Let me know how, you know, what to do. And I, you know, normally be two or $300, you know, something like that. And, uh, but when I, like, I knew what was going on, I'm like, <laughs> like Morgan, like, can we be, I want to be a part. I want to be a part of this. I want to invest you know, so can we just take the money that would have gone to, you know, like pay an employee or something? Can we just put that to, we still paid the employee, okay? But like, can we put that towards, towards this? Like, I want to be involved. And like, when we do that, like my heart gets in line with the heart of God. So generosity is this investment in eternal things. It aligns our hearts with God. Number three, we see that generosity is a countercultural way of life. Very countercultural because it challenges this life that has been shaped by the world's values. The mind, your mind, from birth is being formed. And we talked about this in week one, okay? But your mind is being formed unintentionally, whether you mean to or not, it's happening to everybody. 
into a certain image. And like what that image looks like is, the, is American consumerism. Like we don't even have to try, but this consumeristic mindset is constantly pushed at us and it is based solely on this idea of scarcity. This mindset of scarcity, which simply says that there is not enough. There's not enough out there. You need to get more. And there's not enough because you're not enough. In fact, you're not enough, and the, and the answer to you not being enough is that if you would just consume more of X, then you would be fulfilled. You'd be happy. And X could be anything. It's not just more money. It could be a better position. It could be a spot on the team. It could be more friends. But if you just got this, then you'd be fulfilled. But you're not enough. So Jesus comes along, and he challenges this scarcity mindset that says you're not enough, into a mindset of abundance. And so we're going to get uncomfortable for a moment. And believe, listen, believe me, my, my toes are bloody this week, just like preaching this to myself. So I don't, don't think like I'm way up here and I'm teaching you what to do. But, a, but scarcity says I need to store up and save because I don't know when this is going to run out or I need to hoard this for myself. Abundance mindset says that there's always going to be enough. So don't be afraid to give. So. It's like when you go to the movies. Um, you ever gone to the movies and bought something like this? Okay, you go to the theater and you buy something like this. This is a uh, box of M&Ms. I think they're $35 at the theater. Um, <laughs> this is a smaller box. I got this one at Dollar General. It's a dollar. But anyway, so so anyway, you get you get the $35 box of M&Ms and you go in there to your seat, you know, and you've got to be really careful going in there because these things, they rattle. And the people you're sitting by are going to find out that you have them. Okay, so I go down here and I sit with, now Alicia would never do this. She's just being a nice uh, help illustration purpose. All right, so anyway, I go sit down with uh, with somebody here and uh, she hears me rattling around and what's Alicia going to do? She's going to ask, can I have some? Oh yeah, sure, sure you can have some. Not, or that's probably seven or eight. Wow, that's more than I meant to give you. Okay, so um, I'm going to give to her maybe, uh, unless it's my kids. And then it's like, toughen up, dude. Uh, so uh, this is for me, uh, but I'm going to give to her but I'm going to do it based on how much I have left. Does that make sense? Because like the reason I bought these was for me. I didn't buy them for you. If you want some, go get your own, you know, but I don't have very many left. And if I give you too much, there's not going to be enough for me. On the flip side, have you ever been to the movie theater on Monday or Tuesday for the matinee? You ever done that? You want to hear in Paragold? You bring your own bowl. Okay. Like Jody, you still here? I hope so. Cause I'm really offending right here. All right. So you bring your own bowl. And they're going to fill up your bowl for free with, well, for the price of your admission with popcorn. So I bring a big bowl, okay, like this, and it's filled with popcorn. And when that happens, you know what else is going to happen? Like, I'm not even going to eat this much popcorn probably, but what happens if I did eat all of it? I get free refills. Did you know that? So, so because of that, like I'm walking out there like, Hey, you want some popcorn? Like I, I'm heading to sit down. Like you know, I'm trying to get my seat. Like here's my family. Like I'm sorry. Excuse me. Excuse me. You want some popcorn? You know, like I am not afraid at all to share what I've got. Here, take a bite. It's really good. I popped it this morning. All right. So like, uh, I'm not afraid to share because why? Because there's more where this came from. That actually may have fallen on the floor earlier first service. So just be careful. <laughs> I'm going to, I am more than happy to give because in my mind, I know there's more where this came from. But if I'm being honest, most of the time I'm carrying a scarcity mindset. 
Which mindset do we carry? How about this? When someone else receives it, whatever it is, it's a coworker gets a promotion or uh, a friend gets a bonus or, uh, you know, your friend's parents buy them a new car and you didn't get one, you know. What, what does that do to, to your heart? Are you one who wants to bless that and pray for more of that for them? Or you, do you do like I often do and say, when's it going to be my turn? Do you know that there is an unlimited supply? And Jesus wants to train us to use money and possessions to advance the kingdom of God. Jesus identified in Matthew chapter 6 that the greatest threat to your discipleship to Jesus is your trust in money, wealth, and possessions. It's the greatest threat you have to your discipleship to Jesus. More than the Republican Party. And that could be a threat. More than the Democrat Party. More than atheism or secularism. But most of us, like, like me, uh, don't have like the best theology of money. Morally, like we think that the best thing, when I say we, like my thought most of my Christian life has been that the best thing I could do as far as money is concerned, the most moral thing I can do is just to give it all away. And it's based on passages and maybe some bad preaching on uh, Luke 18. We'll put that up on the screen, Luke, screen, Luke 18, 18. Jesus said a certain ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And by the way, eternal life, he's not talking about like the afterlife. He's talking about like, how can I experience the abundant life now? Because, you know, a ruler in that day would not have been asking about how do I go to heaven when I die? He's asking like, how can I experience the abundant life? And then Jesus gives him this thing about like, well, you know, all the rules, you know, you know, the commandments do this and that honor your father and mother. And he answers like, I've done all that. Then verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And there's the verse. I'd hear that and be like, oh, that's, that's what I need to do. So sell everything I have. Now, it's not what I've done. In case you may be looking at me like, he ain't done that. That's true. But like in my mind, it's like if I wanted to be the best Christian possible, I'd just sell everything I have, give it to the poor, and then come follow Jesus. Then he says, come follow me, verse 23. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy, which literally means he had lots of stuff. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And so there's this, uh, this idea that like poverty is next to godliness. And Dallas Willard, uh, I'm going to quote from him from, from a book he wrote. I don't remember the title. Uh, we're going to put it up on the screen. <clears throat> Yeah, I can't remember now. All right, so I'm going to read it to you. You can read along with me. He said, it's almost universally held today that in this passage, Jesus says it's easier for the poor to be saved than the rich. But he says no such thing. You only have to look at his words to see this. The point of the passage has nothing to do with the relative positions of poor and rich. What he teaches here is simply that it is no easy thing for the rich to enter under the rule of God. So let's be clear about one thing. Whoever cannot have riches without worshiping them above God should get rid of them. If that will enable him or her to serve and 
uh, trust and serve God rightly. Poverty in itself is no recommendation to God and no means of grace. Did you know it's possible to have lots of things and your heart be fully devoted to God and to not put any trust in the things that you possess? To be very generous. Did you know it's also possible to be very poor, not have much stuff, and yet your life be completely consumed and controlled by a desire for more stuff? He goes on to say, should we not then be like the birds of the air, which so, he's like going on about this argument about we should all just give everything away. If that's the case, shouldn't we be like the birds of the air, which sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns? That seems to be the true life of faith. If that's true, though, how could we fail to include poverty in our list of the central disciplines in the spiritual life? Like that's one of the things you've got to do to follow Jesus, be poor. There's a very good reason why not. The idealization of poverty is one of the most dangerous illusions of, of Christians in the contemporary world. Stewardship, he says, which requires possessions and includes giving, is the true spiritual discipline in relationship to wealth. So, it is very countercultural. It also, number four, requires discipline. Generosity requires discipline. We have to train our hearts to be generous, just like we have to train our hearts to be patient or to not have a temper. You know how God trains your hearts to be patient? Children. Children, yes. Uh, anybody in here say that you struggle and you want to grow in the area of patience? Anybody want, in here want to say that I struggle with generosity? Oh, oh okay, wow. I'm actually surprised that we'd say that. Uh, it's not something we usually say, yeah, I'm a stingy person, you know? <laughs> but we'll all go out there and be like, yeah, I lack patience, you know, it's just me. But yeah, I'm real stingy and I don't like to share my stuff. Uh, we don't usually say that kind of thing. However, when we're growing in generosity, that's what we're wanting to do. Giving is the primary discipline that's going to shape your heart. Tithing, by the way, um, is not generosity, but it's not the same, but it is a spiritual discipline. And so tithing can help like Train your heart to be generous. Uh, First Corinthians 13, though, uh, Paul talks about, like, I can, I can actually give a lot to stuff. Let's just read how he says it. I can give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I don't have love. Like, I gain nothing. So you could be in here and, like, be a faithful giver, and yet your heart not be affected by this at all and actually gain nothing. It's like running a marathon which I know nothing about, okay? Um, See, I just remembered that I wasn't sucking in just now. And so, um, like now I am. Um, But yeah, okay. So like I'm out of shape, okay? But it would require a lot of training for me to run a marathon. That's actually true, okay? You may be thinking like, no way, he's awesome. He's real buff. Uh, It's all show, okay? Uh, But I'd have to train my body to do that. I don't think I could run a mile right now, but in the same way, we have to train our hearts to be generous. It's true that we've received the, that DNA of God when we become his children, but like some of those things need nurturing. <laughs> some of those um, characteristics need nurturing. Generosity for sure is one of those. So what are you training for? Number four, it requires discipline. Number five, generosity requires stewardship. There are these two ends of the spectrum that like 
I want to talk about each of them. One of them is the prosperity gospel. And one is what we might call the poverty gospel. Okay. Now you may have heard of the prosperity gospel, which basically says that God wants you to be rich and have lots of material things. You'd be like, Hey, send in your, your seed money and you'll get tenfold back. You're going to have a new Cadillac. I remember watching one dude. He was saying like, you need to go down to that Lexus dealership and get in and just sit in that thing and smell the leather and all this and that. Cause that's what God wants to do for you. And while there may be some underlying truth to the, to the prosperity gospel, the, the big problem with it is that the motivation behind it is that I would receive material things that my heart craves and it has nothing to do with enjoying more of God or seeing his kingdom advance. It's seeing my kingdom advance. You know, God wants to build my kingdom. But on the other hand, which is where I typically want to run, possibly because I've never had a lot of money. The other way, the other way I want to run is the poverty gospel, which is going to say like, give it all away, just indiscriminately give it all away and God will give you riches in heaven. But to be generous, one must first be a good steward. So Donald Craybill in his book, The Upside Down Kingdom, he says it this way about stewardship. He says the word steward means, quote, manager over the house. The steward is an official who controls a large household for the master. It's proper to use the term stewardship to describe a a Christian's relationship to property. The concept reminds us that God, in fact, owns the property. So like you may own lots of stuff, like you may have a nice car, you may have a couple cars, you may have an extra house at the river or the lake or whatever, but in reality, you don't own anything. God owns all that and we're just stewards. He then says, what do we mean by stewardship? Well, it's helpful to distinguish between the wishes of the owner and the wishes of the steward. The steward is responsible to manage the property according to the master's wishes, not the steward's. We sometimes can use the term stewardship to whitewash our own desires. We can make stewardship mean taking whatever resources we have, multiply them as fast as possible, and use them for our own purposes. Now, if I may, any opportunity I get to geek out on the Lord of the Rings, I'm going to do it. Anybody in here familiar with the Lord of the Rings? Oh, great. You're going to get this. Okay, Aiden, yes. You're going to get this. Okay. In the Lord of the Rings... The third book of the series is three, there's three books or the third movie. Does anyone know the title? The Return of the King. That's right. All right. So there's this kingdom in the book called Gondor and it's a kingdom of men, this great kingdom. Well, it has lost like the succession of kings has been broken over a thousand years ago. Okay. So there's been no king ruling Gondor for like over a thousand years. And instead it's been ruled for centuries now by a line of stewards. Okay. So stewards were to rule the kingdom and basically just like be placeholders and manage the affairs of the kingdom until a king should return to the throne. In fact, the steward of the kingdom even sat in the great hall where the king would sit. The king's throne was like way up here and there was a smaller throne that the steward would sit on. Okay. Well, in the third movie, the third book, the true king, the true heir of the throne, his name's Aragorn, he had been found. And Gandalf the wizard is going to usher Aragorn back to Gondor to assume the throne. Well, the steward of Gondor is going to have nothing to do with it. And when Gandalf shows up, the wizard shows up, they have a lot, they have some words back and forth. And basically the steward says like, I, I am not going to bow to this range, this, this nobody. He's not, he's not my king and I'm not going to bow to him. Gandalf turns around and says, Authority is not given to you to deny the return of the king. Steward, that's what he calls him, okay? 
I'm getting into character here. And then the steward says, the rule of Gondor is mine and no others. Thank you. And, and that is, that is exactly the attitude that creeps up in my heart all the time. The rule of this kingdom right here is mine. Nobody else's. This belongs to me. And I'm going to use it for whatever purposes I want. Yeah, I mean, I want to be a good steward and multiply it and make it big so that I can use it for myself. The most generous person I ever met, I met him when I was two years old. His name was Don. I met him because we lived next door to each other on 6th Street right over here. Our driveways like touched each other. I got out of the car when I was two years old. And he was standing in the driveway and he introduced himself to me and we just like bonded right away. He became closer than a grandfather figure to me. Um, and he just poured out his life into me. Okay. For 18 years, we were this, the closest of friends. Uh, and after that, I mean, he passed away when I was 20 years old. But Don would do anything for me. He'd take me anywhere. He would take me to the police station and we would get in the police cars and turn the lights and sirens on. He'd take me to the fire station. We'd get on the fire trucks, turn it all on. He took me back here. He was a retired railroad engineer. We, right behind the crossing here. Was a, I remember there was a locomotive back here. He got us up on there. I got to pull the whistle. I was like just blowing it. I mean, like we, he took me to the Shriner Circus every year down in Pine Bluff. The Shri- he was a Shriner. He raised money for the Children's Hospital up in St. Louis, the Shriner's Children's Hospital, which uh, treats burn victims at no charge. And uh, so, like, he was an advocate for, like, child burns and stuff. So we would go around with, like, these 35-millimeter projectors, you know, and uh, we'd go to the VFW up in Rector, you know, and we'd show a, a little film on kids getting burned in the bathtub, that kind of stuff, to, like, 12 old men, you know, and, uh, and all this. But anyway, so we did everything together. And every week he would pick me up and take me in his little car and we'd go down to Kroger, uh, which was a, you know, we used to have a Kroger here in Perigold and we would buy stuff for my house, like that I wanted. Okay. Not that my family didn't have groceries. We had groceries, but not the cool stuff that I wanted. This was just for me. And so we'd go in there and my family wasn't buying me frozen pizzas. So Don be like, why don't you get you a couple frozen pizzas? Yes, I will. And I would push the cart. He let me push the cart. A couple of frozen pizzas. He'd be like, do you want any like ding-dongs, you know, or some uh, some uh, oatmeal cream pies? Like, heck yeah, you know, filling that up. Got oatmeal cream pies in there. Don't forget, jar of pickles. Yes, so I'd always get one of those jars of the big pickles, you know, always put a jar on that. And then we'd get up to the checkout line. Like, I want some baseball cards. He'd give me two packs of baseball cards every time, okay? In fact, by the time I became an adult, I had like over 5,000 baseball cards, okay, thanks to Don. So like every week, two packs of baseball cards. We'd thumb, anyway, that was just like what he did. And we'd leave there, and guess what? We'd go to First National Bank. And when we got to First National Bank, Don had opened a savings account for me when I was little. I didn't know, I didn't know what this was, you know. But he would go in and, and deposit $25 into my savings account every week. $25, you know. And uh, I mean, he was not only investing monetarily and with groceries and stuff in me, he was investing like his, his philosophy of life himself into me. So we would go to First United Methodist Church. It's the first time I'd ever been in a church before. My family didn't go. And so we went together and uh, he would always tell me, you hug those old ladies next. Now he was older than they were, you know, but he'd call them old ladies. And I would, I'd learn to hug everybody. And I became, you know, quite outgoing, you know, because that's how he taught me to be. And he would always tell me like, Robert, you're either going to grow up to be a, a politician or a preacher, you know? And uh, so just constantly like just words of affirmation all of my life always doing that for me. And I'd sit back there and think like, 
uh, by the time uh, I got married and started college, I had over $2,000 in that savings account that it opened for me that I used on my college education. And like this man did all this and you wonder like, why, why did he do that? Well, he certainly wasn't doing it because he was going to get some return on his investment, like monetary return. I wasn't doing, I was just bleeding him dry. You know, I mean, I wasn't actually not, I mean, you know, he, he was doing fine. In fact, he was in a position to do the kind, be the kind of generous person he was to me because of the life he had lived up to that point. He used to tell me all the time, Robert, I don't owe anybody a dime. Now I didn't know what that meant. I was like, well, I don't owe anybody anything either. You know, cause I'm, I'm like eight, you know, um, but all I would ever think about is dimes. Like, why would you owe them dimes? You know, it's so weird. But uh, I, I didn't understand. He was always talking about debt. He didn't have debt. Okay. And like looking back on it, I think, you know, he was in a great position to really invest in me because he had like laid the groundwork ahead of time. And what did he get in return? Was it some kind of monetary return? No, but it's what, um, Jesus talks about as true riches. He got true riches. I was talking with some of the staff about it last week. It's about this story. And, uh, someone brought up to me like, Robert, do you realize like what you gave to him? Like in, in just being there with him and, and all this, like, you know, honestly, I haven't really thought about that that much, but man, he, he received from God like true riches. So in fact, by the way, the uh, year before he died, uh, was able to actually lead him to faith, uh, in Jesus because, because, you know, we'd, he'd taught me my whole life, just go to church, you know, just be good you know, be there every time the doors are open and you'll be okay. And I knew that's all I'd heard all my life. By this point, I was a follower of Jesus. And, um, I just had this conviction that like, I don't think Don actually knows Christ, you know? And so anyway, a year before he passed away, he was at Sunshine Manor. Uh, and we shared the gospel, I shared the gospel with him. And, um, he made the comment to me, like he, he prayed to receive Christ there with me in his room. And then after it was over, he said, uh, Robert, You've given me a really, a really good thing. And you know, like, like what he got out of that was, was so much more than he gave away. So generosity leads to true riches. Giving what you have is the key to increasing what you carry. And when you learn to give away whatever you have, like God begins to lay these, uh, and we're not talking about just like more money. We're just talking about influence. Joy, the, the, the heart of God, you know, like contentment. It begins to give you all these things. That's why it's so important to be a mentor. Just like giving away what you have. Uh, Luke 16, verse 10, Jesus says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. If you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who's going to trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who's going to give you property of your own? And if you can't be trusted with these very little things, what are the very little things he's even talking about? Money. Now, in my mind, it ain't a very little thing. That's a big thing. Ah, not to Jesus. Again, like, we're going to rule with him over all of creation. Like, what is money? You know? It's a tool. You know, you can actually have lots of stuff. Homes, businesses, lots of travel. And none of that actually control you. But you know that it can be possible to have little to nothing and be very controlled by your desire for money and possessions. So it's not money that is evil, but it's the love of money. And the solution is not just giving everything away. In fact, that actually can be harmful to some people, like just indiscriminately giving things away. 
So when we steward what we have with kingdom values, God increases our capacity to handle true riches. So we're storing up treasures in heaven. Treasures in heaven. Not, not like for when we die. Like I used to always think like I'm storing up treasures in heaven so that when I go to heaven, my mansion's going to be bigger than yours. You know what I mean? That, that was my thought. Like I keep storing up treasures so I'm going to have like more money, more whatever it is that we have in heaven to, to barter with. That's, that's why I'm, I'm going to be loaded, you know, so that I'll be like strutting around better than everybody else. Like, no. Like when I'm storing up treasures in heaven, this is something I, I don't just have access to it in the afterlife, but in this life. Like I'm wanting to store up like th- this, this treasure that I have access to today to see the kingdom of God flourish and expand today. And lastly, leads us to this one. Generosity always points people back to God. Yesterday, I got a text from Jared uh, who was like, he knows that we're preaching on generosity today. And he was telling me that he'd gone through the drive-thru at Dairy Queen. And uh, when he got up to pay for his food, he found out that the person in front of him had paid for his meal. And Nora was with him. And she asked the question that I'd be asking too, like, why would any, why would somebody do that? And then Jared just responded and said, you know, extravagant generosity demands a gospel explanation. Isn't it interesting that like when you are just extravagantly generous, that people are all automatically going to ask like, why are you doing that? And what an opportunity just to point people back to God who has been so generous with me and with you. So we're going to wrap it up with this. I know we got to hurry. Actually, we don't have to hurry real fast because there's no one like waiting to come in. So I can keep you here all day, I guess. Uh, but I'm getting hungry. So uh, how do we cultivate like a heart of generosity? How do we do that? Well, I'm going to give you four things. These are real simple. Um, well, simple to write down, maybe not simple to implement, but let's give it a try. Number one, take an inventory of your resources. Let God audit your spending and bank accounts and spending habits. Like let, let God audit that. Like if you could take all of your income and, and expenses and like write it all out or put it on a pie chart and like present that to God, what would the verdict be? How are you spending what you've been given? Make an audit of it, like write it out. Take an inventory of it. Now, by the way, right here could be an opportunity for some of you to, to start feeling some shame. Um, because you're like, man, I'm crappy at this. I'm really bad at this. Sorry. Um, <laughs> someone told me a while ago that that's crappy is not a bad word. I think it is. So, um, ace, don't say that. Um, be like, man, I, I, I'm really terrible. But I just want you to know that like there, there can be a good conviction over like, I've, I've not gotten this right, or I, I need to grow in this area that leads us to repentance. And then, you know, looking more like Jesus, but just know that like the whole idea of, of shame that you're bad, like, no, like, no, Jesus took your shame on himself on the cross. And so when you put your faith in him, just know that he makes all things new and that you're, that, that that's not what he wants you to live in or out of. Uh, but instead he wants to make you generous. So this would be a good opportunity. Like if you're feeling some of that to be like, okay, like God, I, I'm recognizing that this has not been my mindset. And so I, make me more generous. Make me more like you. I want to repent of that. And I want, I just want to be more like Jesus because I want to experience more of you. Not because the church needs more money or, you know, in fact, let me just go on to say number two. Um, well, I'm going to get to the, I, I've got a praise I want to give you, but I want to wait. First one, take an inventory. Number two, make a plan. Make a plan. 
which is a budget. Most people, Christians and non-Christians, are not living on a budget. But generosity requires discipline. And you may be thinking, oh man, I want to be free. I, you know, I don't want to like be constrained to a budget, you know. Well, I, I heard one pastor say um, in premarital counseling that if you're not living on a budget, you're living in sin. And I've, I've wrestled with that and thought, like, I mean, like, is that sin? Maybe. Close to it. It's not wise. How about that? So make a budget. Get out of debt. Save money. Start giving. Practice giving. In fact, uh, if, if you don't, you're like, wow, that sounds great. I want to do that. I want to get out of debt, but I don't even know how. You know, well, Financial Peace University is a course that we do hope to start uh, offering as a church and hopefully in the next few months. That'd be a great resource and opportunity for you. In the meantime, just know that like the pastors and uh, staff, like anybody's willing to help you. Like, if you want to sit down and lay it out and like not feel like shame about it, but just like, hey, let's look at your, your income and spending and stuff. We want to help you because we want to help you thrive. We want to help you enjoy you know, more of God. And so uh, just know that like that's available to you. Develop a budget. Um, one thing Dave Ramsey will always say who leads Financial Peace University is that I want to teach you how to live like nobody else because nobody else is doing this. I want you to live like nobody else so that you can live like nobody else, right? Like you want to have the opportunity to give and to, to be a blessing, like to expand the kingdom of God. So to free up the, and make you available to, to do that, like we got to have a plan. Number three, practice the spiritual discipline of tithing. And here's where I do want to give you some, just some praise. I just want to say to the Crossing Church, like, well done. Like over these last several months, uh, we have seen church after church. You know, we, we read about it online and all this about how churches are really struggling. I mean, there's been so many layoffs throughout, you know, the country I and mean, it's been you know, pandemic time, right? And so, uh, all these shutdowns has, has caused a financial crisis in our, in our nation. And I just want you to know that the church as a whole has been faithful. And I just want to say thank you. And like, well done on that. Um, again, because it is true, like my, my job depends on there being uh, money here to even support it. Uh, and so like, I, I don't believe, am I right? Like we've even seen a dip in giving uh, since this whole thing started. So just bravo on that. But a couple words on tithing. Tithing is not, like we said earlier, it's not generosity. It leads to generosity. The word literally means a tenth. Tithe is a tenth. Uh, it is the idea of giving to a local church with no strings attached. So it's not giving to a cause or a building campaign or, you know, the youth fund or something like that. It's, it's giving to a speci- uh, excuse me, giving to a local church with no strings attached. The problem with tithing can be that we'll focus more on the 10% and like ignore the 90% that we keep for ourselves. And so that requires stewardship. So I'm gonna give you a couple stats on it. Nationwide here in the United States, Less than 17% of churchgoers give regularly. 17%. However, 8 out of 10 people who tithe, 8 out of 10, have no credit card debt. And 30% of them are debt-free. Like no mortgage, no nothing. On average, Christians in the U.S. give 2.5, Christians in the U.S. give 2.5% of their gross income. That is less than during the Great Depression. And you may be thinking like, well, if I had more money, I'd give more. I'd be more prone to give. That's not true either. Statistics say that if you make less than $20,000 a year, you're actually eight times more likely to tithe than if you make over 75,000. And finally, millennials, which there's many of us in here, right? 
Millennials make up 30% of the population, but give only 7% of all donations. So just some food for thought. Number four. Number one was take an inventory. Number two, make a plan. Number three, tithe. Number four, be generous with everyone, everywhere, always. Like when you go out to a restaurant, you should be the biggest giver, the biggest tipper. First four years I ever worked uh, in my life when I was in high school, I worked at Hunan Chinese restaurant and I was a server. I was a waiter. Okay. And I always remembered certain guests. Okay. There were two types of guests. I remembered those who were extravagant tippers. I always remember them. And those who didn't, those who were bad tippers or didn't tip. Okay. And do you know when I typically found to be the worst day to work, uh, as far as tips were concerned, Sundays. Sundays. We used to talk about it. It was a, it was a big discussion. I've, I've asked people as an adult, you know, I'd go into restaurants and be like, Hey, what's the, what's your least favorite day to work? Ah, Sunday. Why is that? Ah, just not very good tips on Sunday. Like, what? Like you mean that you believe that all of heaven's resources are at your disposal and like, you're going to give this waitress who, who like that is her income. Cause she's only making like two fifty an hour from the restaurant, right? So your tip is how she's making her money. And so like, you're going to be like, ah, here's, here's a buck 50, you know, and a tract, right? That's even better. It's like, here's a dollar 50 and here's a tract on how you can be saved. See ya. You know what I mean? Like, what is that communicating? Like, can we make a commitment as the crossing church to give at least 30% tip from now through December? I think we should do that. Okay. I'm going to do that. If you would commit to do that, at least 30%. And you would be thinking like, well, that's crazy. I wouldn't do that because in fact, I'm going to go there. What if, what if they give terrible service? They don't deserve it. Ah, they don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. And so when I give out of just like my, my love for, for people and because the DNA of God is flowing through me, and especially like when they do a, you know, and they know they did a bad job. You know what I mean? You've had that waitress who's like, you know, they're trying to hurry up and basically get out of there because they know that you're mad, you know. Just bless them. Give above and beyond. Why? Because that's exactly what God did for you. Did not deserve it. I did not deserve it. Let's stand together. Let's pray to this God. And just as we're about to close, like we're going to bow our head and close our eyes. We're about to sing a song. I think we're singing Amazing Grace. Oh, yeah, which just talks about the generosity of God. Maybe you've been sitting here listening to this and thinking like, you know, well, you know, I've been a pretty religious or good person. But if I'm really honest with myself and I'm listening to the Spirit right now, I would have to be, I'd have to say that my heart doesn't line up with that of God. Or maybe you would even say, like Jared said in in week one of the series, that my life has not been reoriented around following Jesus. Like I may be religious, but I'm not, I don't think I'm a disciple of Jesus. And if that's you, just know that like there, there are a couple elders here right now. I know Jared's back there. Adam's up while well, Adam's singing. Well, you can come talk to me. I'm not, you know, whatever. We're happy to help you learn like how can I reorient my life around following Jesus and have the same heart of God implanted in me. Let's pray together. Father, you've been so, so generous. You give and give and give, and it was most beautifully displayed in the giving of your own son, Jesus, when we were so lost and did not deserve it. 
Put that same spirit in us, a spirit of generosity, that your kingdom may come and your will would be done right here in our city, just like it's done in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.